Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 13. I hope you have a copy of God's Word uh, with you this morning. If you don't have one, if you don't own one, uh, we do have some that are in the back uh, on the giving tables. They are yours to have if you don't have one. But I I do want to stop for a moment, just kind of encourage you uh, to begin to make a, a habit of bringing a copy of God's Word to church with you on Sunday mornings, uh, whether that be uh, you know technology techno- technology based through iPad or phone, or I personally prefer a copy of because I'm I'm old I guess, uh, but I like a copy of God's Word. But I encourage you to start bringing, or if you don't have that habit, to do that. That way we can just see there and make notes. It's just a healthy uh, discipline to have. But if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 13. Uh, we'll continue into the narrative, uh, the book of Acts, which we have been in for a while. Uh, and so uh, just to kind of bring us up to speed where we are, uh, Kennedy, if you can bring up the Acts, uh, the logo, the uh, yeah, I'll just kind of bring our attention back to here because it's been a while since we have kind of just went all the way to the beginning, if you will, uh, to kind of bring us up to speed of where we are. So you remember the book of Acts begins with Christ ascending to the Father. Uh, he's meeting with his disciples there, and he is uh, preparing them for him to go. Uh, and that after he goes, the Holy Spirit would descend. So we see in chapters 1 and 2, the, the Christ ascending, the Spirit descending. So that's up, down. And then out is in the Holy Spirit, or the, the church is now being sent out uh, to spread the gospel, if you will. And where we've been in the first 12 chapters, really when we get to chapter 13, we're kind of like turning the page, if you will, uh, we're turning to a, the, the next setting, if you will. And so the first 12 chapters really concern uh, the church in Jerusalem and Peter's ministry. Uh, and everything up to this point, and definitely in the idea of going out, for the church, for the most part, has been more reaction than it is like pro, you know, being proactive. It's more about uh, things like God working in uh, their, their crisis or working in their what's going on and God adding to the numbers. We see that at Pentecost, Peter preaches, thousands get saved. We see it after uh, the first time that they get arrested, people are added to the flock. We see it uh, definitely when Steve, after Stephen's killed, right, and the church is scattered because of persecution, the imagery that Luke and I used through that was, it's the picture of God spreading the seed, the gospel seed uh, throughout uh, the region there. So we see as a result of Stephen's Uh, martyrdom that the church is now being forced out of Jerusalem. The apostles stayed back, but the church is being forced out of Jerusalem. And as they're going, the scripture actually says that as they went, they just really gossiped the gospel. They were, they were talking about the gospel while they were going. And it would probably be a pretty natural conversation. It's like, hey, dude, you're not from here. Why are you here? Well, let me tell you why I'm here. I believe in this guy named Jesus. And in Jerusalem, it's not safe for us to be there. And this is why, but I'm still... And so, but what I want you to notice is, and I think it's, it's very important for us to notice this, uh, even like Peter and Cornelius, it wasn't like Peter was just like, we do see pictures in, in 9 and 10 maybe where Peter kind of went on a preaching journey. Uh, but for the most part, everything was done kind of as a reaction or a very like God, like Peter's up, up, up on top of the house hungry and then God speaks to him or puts him in a trance and there's other people that are coming. But as far as for gospel expansion or kingdom expansion, it's been reactionary, if you will, or just kind of uh, God obviously sovereignly orchestrating unique conversations specifically to see the gospel get out of Jerusalem to Gentiles. Then when we get to the church of Antioch, right, we, we for the first time, we're seeing kind of through chapter 9, we've seen obviously the, the Jewish believers and we've seen half-Jew believers, uh, 
but we haven't really seen like Gentile believers, right? Uh, except for the Ethiopian eunuch who obviously he wasn't a Jew, but he wanted to be a Jew. So there's still kind of a little bit, not like a full Gentile, if you will. Uh, and so when we're walking through this passage, we're seeing the kingdom advancing, but through persecution, through God sovereignly working things. And when we get to chapter 13, things become less reaction to them being proactive. What happens is, is now for the first time, we're seeing that the church is going to begin to actively send out missionaries, not just in a sense that they're reacting and God's working all things because he does that. But for now, they're getting, they're finally getting the picture of God's mission, if you will. And they're going to begin to send out missionaries to specific places that don't know Christ. Everybody with me? So we're beginning to see a, a change uh, when we get to chapter 13. Uh, and so the landscape, as I said, is changing from Jerusalem to now, really, 13 through 28, is uh, the Paul's ministry, if you will. We've been with Peter for the first 12 chapters. Now we're switching to Paul and how Antioch really became the, the hub of sending out Paul to preach the gospel, Paul and Barnabas, if you will. Uh, and what we see when we read this text is that uh, they began sending. They didn't know what was next, per se, but they knew that they were dependent upon God to do whatever it was. And so when we get to, uh, really, if you look at verse 25, let me go ahead and read the text. Uh, I'm going to go back to verse 25 of chapter 12 and then read through verse 3 of chapter 13. It says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. If you time out for if you remember at the uh, end of chapter 11, we see that, uh, that the church had taken up an offering to, to go to Jerusalem. And so... We don't know the timeline of whenever, uh, when Paul and Barnabas or Saul and Barnabas uh, were there taking the gift or when they came back. But what we're seeing is, is now for, some, for what, what Luke has done in writing Acts is like he starts with Antioch and then he takes a time out for like one last view of what's going on in Jerusalem. And then he jumps back into the scene. So really, you can actually see verse 25 is just connected to the end of chapter 11. That's really kind of how we could read this. And so they went, and now they're coming back. Everybody with me? All right, so verse 25. And the Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had com uh, completed their service, bringing with them John, whose also name was Mark. So this is John Mark, remember, who Peter, uh, whenever he was uh, delivered from prison, he went to John Mark's mother's house. This is that John Mark, who's also Barnabas's cousin, which we read in the book of Colossians. And so that's the connection there is that, uh, Barnabas' cousin was John Mark. But anyway, so they returned. They bring John Mark with them. Verse, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That should catch your attention just for a moment because we just got through talking about a Herod uh, in chapter 12, but this is another Herod we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, but in one of the leaders of the church was this dude named Menean who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. May the Lord add favor and blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray, Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word, uh, for the treasure that it is, um, God, that it uh, is a gift that you have given us to know you, to know your will, to know your ways. God, we pray that as we, uh, as we dive into it now, God, that you give us eyes to see, 
ears to hear. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everybody said Amen. So what we have going on here is now we're back in Antioch. He, he takes a time out, goes back to Jerusalem for a moment, and now we're back in Antioch. If we're transitioning, there's a transition that Luke is doing here from the church in Jerusalem to the church of Antioch being a mission-sending church. And so, But this isn't the first time we've heard about Antioch. Right? We, we remember we're introduced to Antioch in chapter 11. Uh, and this is kind of how, it's, it's cool how Luke is writing this because at the beginning of chapter uh, 11, or really 10 and 11, you have the story of Peter and Cornelius and everything that's going on there. Then 11 starts with Peter going back to Jerusalem uh, and kind of talking about what was going on. And then he jumps down into the church of Antioch. So what we remember is as all these things were going on uh, with Peter and Cornelius, God was already working in Antioch. Like God, like we don't see this as like linear as in there happens sequentially. Like these things are going on. So as God was working here with Peter and Cornelius, he had already began to work in Antioch. There were people who were already there. Why were they there? Because of the persecution of Stephen. So as they were going, they get there and it tells us that there were some guys uh, from, if you look in chapter 11, that were from Cyprus to Cyrene that they came to Antioch and they were preaching Jesus uh, to these Gentiles, if you will. Uh, these Greek people, they were, speak, they were preaching. And so what we understand is that, that God was already doing a work in Antioch. And so we're introduced to him in chapter 11. And here's some things we already know about Antioch. So I'm just going to kind of bring us up to speed, uh, and then we'll dive into the text, okay? So here's, here's four characteristics that we already know about the church of Antioch. First of all, that they were made up of both Jew and Gentile believers. And this is important for us to catch. Uh, because up until this point, we've seen the church in Jerusalem, we've seen the church in Samaria, uh, and more of the uh, uh, half-Jew people, but now we're seeing an actual church, as in the one that God is designing, a church of both Jew and Gentile, uh, of two people who are once at enmity towards another. There were two men where Christ, is, uh, through his death, has abolished that dividing wall and has made us one in Christ. We're seeing it played out before our eyes. There are these people, we see it, that, uh, as, as MacArthur said, is that the first thing we notice about the church of Antioch is that there were, it was a church full of saved people. Uh, and what you say, Justin, that's obvious, but the reality is you'd be surprised at how many churches are just full of people, not yet necessarily believers. But what we understand by Antioch, these people were born again. Uh, these people had trusted in Jesus as their, their hope and their Savior. We see it in chapter 11, verse 21, where it says, uh, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And we see it in verse 24, when it says, uh, for he was a good man, speaking of Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and great many people were added to the Lord. So we know that this is a group of people who come from different backgrounds. They're living in Antioch, which was just a, a widespread of nationalities. We see it in the leadership that, that Luke writes about in Acts 13. People from all over the place came to Antioch. And so within the church, there were people that were from Africa, that were from, uh, from Jerusalem. They were from all over the place that all were here and they had believed in the Lord Jesus. They were saved people. They had trusted in Christ. That's how they became a member of the church of Antioch by repentance and confession of Jesus, right? All right, with me. All right, so the next thing that we know is that they were devoted to the teaching and hearing of God's word. Remember what Barnabas does after he meets the church at Antioch. What does he do? He goes to find who? Saul. Uh, we see that uh, in chapter 11, uh, verse uh, 25. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look, to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great taught a great many people. 
And so we understand what we know about Antioch. There were people from different backgrounds, Jew, Gentile. They believed in Jesus, and they were committed to God's word. That for a year, Paul and, Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, we're going to see in this chapter that he kind of loses the L and gains the P, uh, becomes Paul, if you will. Uh, but uh, uh, um, he loses, yeah, loses the S, sorry. Uh, Lol, his name's Lol. Uh, and what you'll notice, if it's not on here, I don't know what's coming out of my mouth. Uh, and so anyway, we'll see that. Uh, but for a year, they, they taught the word of God. They taught great things to many people. And I want you to see something too. And this is not just like a, a plug, but it is like, notice that like what I'm talking about is, is very similar to what we call our core values. Like what, the core values we have as a church isn't something just random. It is something that we see through the scriptures that they committed themselves to God's word. First of all, they were saved. And then they committed themselves to God's word. Uh, the next thing that we see, not only do we see that they were devoted to the word, but we see that they're, they're witnessing their testimony. Uh, you may not have called it, but in verse 26 of chapter 11, it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And for that, for that time period, that would have been like a derogatory thing. Like, look at these little Christians. But what it's showing is that these people, they, they believed in Jesus. They, they were devoted to the word so much that their lives were being transformed. As they were living their lives throughout their community, their people, look at those little Christ. Look at those little people that are actually becoming like the person they say they believe in. So we see their witness and their testimony wasn't just that they loved the God's word, but it actually transformed the way they lived their life. The fourth thing that we see is that they love God's people. Well, I remember the end of chapter 11, that Agabus, the prophet, came in and talked about there would be a famine. And so what did they do? They took up a love offering, if you will, and they sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem with that gift. And so you see, there are people who were born again. They devoted themselves to God's word. It transformed their life, and they were committed to who? God's people. Now we jump into chapter 13, and we're going to see four more characteristics by the church at Antioch that I want you to see, I want to spell out this morning. First of all, there were a church that were served by leaders. Now look at verse, uh, chapter 13, verse one, it says, now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time because Luke has talked about prophets here, but we understand that in the early church and there was the offices and they were, these were separated. There was prophets and there were teachers. And uh, one of the best ways, sometimes the prophets got a new revelation, if you will, we saw with Agabus. Now, we can't deny that we saw that there. Uh, and whether you believe that that gift is gone or if it's still here, that's neither here nor there right now. But what we see is that there were, group, there were five men who were leaders and they were prophets and or teachers. Could they, uh, we don't know which one were prophets, one were teachers. I believe obviously Saul was the teacher. We see it as he goes through. Uh, but uh, I guess a good way for us to kind of understand that is that a, that a prophet would be someone, let's go to actually to a teacher, one who who, who teaches doctrine, who takes the Old Testament, make it make sense. It brings it, it's these, Jesus, it's the apostles teaching, if you will, to where a prophet would be obviously sometimes like forth telling, if you will, but take about like practical things, like how to live our life, how to keep going, how does this apply to my life? And so you see within the text here that there were these leaders, they were, they were prophets and there were teachers. And now he gives us a list of names. First of all, the ones we see, we see Saul or Barnabas at the beginning and Saul at the end. So these are two of the leaders uh, that really we see back in chapter 11 uh, that were beginning to teach. So we knew at that point that they were leaders in that, in that body, uh, that they were teaching for some, some time for over a year. They taught great things. And so we see that there's Paul and, 
or Saul and Barnabas. And then he get, tells us about a guy named Simeon who was called Niger. And Niger means dark skin. So he, this was a guy who was from Africa. Uh, this was a guy who uh, was, was obviously not a Jew, but now he's came uh, and he's, he, he has placed his faith in Jesus and he's rose to leadership. Matter of fact, some people believe that, that Barnabas would have been the one who kind of placed these guys into those positions, like as in called up a plurality of leadership that, that wasn't just going to be Paul and Saul. There were going to be other guys who they pulled, pulled within the ranks, right? And it's a very healthy thing that we see. Then we see a guy named, uh, and that's really all we know about him, is that the color of his skin and where he was from and his name. Uh, and then we have Lucius the Cyrene, uh, who's obviously not Luke who's writing this, but we know that Luke never really kind of revealed himself other than saying we uh, when they're on the missionary journeys and stuff. But now we have Lucius the Cyrene, and there's a good chance that if you look, if you have your Bible open, that you look back, and, and in verse 20 it says, there were some of them men of Cyprus Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to Helenus preaching the Lord Jesus. Lucius, he could have been one of the guys that came in Antioch preaching the gospel to Hellenists. We don't know. But anyway, but what we understand is that Paul and, or Paul and Barnabas or Saul and Barnabas called out these three other guys to leadership within the body. They were, uh, they were, they were set aside, if you will. And, and then there's a guy named Menean. This is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this is not Herod Agrippa that we see in chapter 12. This would be Herod Antipas. This is the Herod of the Gospels. Uh, this is the Herod who uh, beheaded John the Baptist. I don't have Luke's cool uh, thing to put up with my laser pointer, uh, but uh, this, was, this would be Herod the Great's uh, son, if you was. Is that right, Luke? Yeah, and so, uh, so this is the Herod of the Gospels, the one who be, beheaded John the Baptist. This is the one who uh, participated in the trials of Jesus. Like, it was this guy. And so here's a cool word. It says lifelong friend literally could be translated as in the idea of just a close friend or even a foster brother of Herod Antipas. Like, we need to take a time out for a moment and just take a step back and examine what we just read. The... the <laughs> The crazy, out of the same family, one came out who mocked Jesus and killed his people, and one came out who trusted in Jesus and served his people. Like, this Manan guy, it isn't just like he just, like he, he, he grew up within the, the Herod dynasty. He grew up within the family. And it's unbelievable to me that God saved someone out of that family, which for you, you say, Justin, it doesn't mean anything to me. This is what it means to you, is that God can save, save anyone from anywhere. Like, I don't understand the Herod and all. I was like, listen, what that means for me and you is that God, no matter what your upbringing is, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done in your life or your dad's done or your mom's done, that you are not outside the grace of God to reach. Uh, and this isn't even a part of the text, but I just wanted to encourage you. Listen to me. And listen to me. Not only could you be saved, but you could be used of God. This dude's a leader in the church at Antioch. Like if, if there was ever a time that you would look, if, you, if I would have brought that screen upon uh, Luke's little graphic, uh, I say it's not a little graphic, it's actually a big graphic. But anyway, if I were to bring that out and we looked at that and you go, would any of these people, could you see any of these people actually turn into Jesus? By our eyes, by the flesh, we would go, no, but listen to me. <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, the dynasty that you're born into, listen to me. The grace of Jesus can save whomever from wherever. 
That's good news. Maybe somebody needs to be told that this morning. And no matter where you find yourself, you probably didn't grow up in the dynasty of Herods who hated God and killed every person that resembled him. And if God can save somebody out of that family, he can save you and me as well. Well, we can see a little bit about, and so if you keep reading, after Manaen, it says, in Saul, and it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, we really need to define who the they is there. And so when we get to verse two, is Luke only talking about these five dudes when he says they? Or is he talking about the church as a whole, as in the whole church was, was worshiping and fasting? I tend to believe it's, I tend to believe it, maybe the, the, the leaders were the ones that are doing this, but where goes the leader, so goes the people, right? And so the idea is, because he's already introduced now, there was the church in Antioch, so it could be both. It could be uh, that the, the leaders were leading in this manner, or the whole church was worshiping and praying. And so I think it's the whole church, but specifically what Luke's talking about is these guys were leading the church in this capacity, right, with me? And, but, it, but the point applies to either one. And I'm going to walk through. So check out this. It says, and they were, while they were worshiping the Lord, pause there for a moment. Yours, if you don't have an ESV, may, may say ministering to the Lord. And this is, you, this is incredible to me. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek, but this word for, for, for minister here is literally, it means uh, uh, a discharge to public office. As in these guys, these people were called to publicly lead God's people. They had been commissioned, they had been called out by God, but established by the church to be the leaders within this congregation. They were fulfilling the call that which God had placed on them. But this, this is what's awesome about this word. I think this is why the ESV translated to worship because it was not just seen as a public office, but it was used also as priestly service. This word we, in the Greek there for ministering or worshiping, it was, it was one that was obviously used for a public calling to ministry, but it's also one used for a public, uh, for a priestly service, as in worship. That's why we get the word worship there, as they were worshiping. So what we're seeing here, here was these five dudes along with the church, and what were they doing? They were, they were faithfully doing what God had called them to do. And they saw it as worship. Serving God within the church must be viewed as an act of worship. That's what we see about these guys, this church in Antioch, is that, yes, they were serving the Lord, but it wasn't just out of duty. It wasn't just out of spite. It wasn't just because I'm supposed to. They saw their gift and ability to serve God's people as first worship to God. Man, that's, that's the leaders we want, by the way. Uh, and I'm asking you to pray for us as pastors that we will always be people that lead you in a way that our first our first responsibility, our first focus is that we're worshiping God and how we serve you. Don't worry, it ain't gonna just be about us. I'm gonna land the plane for all of us in a moment. And notice that it was to the Lord, that this word ministering, it was to the Lord or worshiping the Lord. They saw this as a holy work that God, God is the audience for all spiritual ministry. Our serving is first to the Lord, not by, to the approval of man. And this is just me talking as pastor. Now, we can't be driven by the applause of man or fear of man and expect to please the Lord. And what we see about these leader, this leadership at Antioch is they first, their devotion was to the Lord. 
Their devotion was worshiping the Lord by serving, uh, serving the Lord by serving his people and leading his people. As pastors, our duty is to teach, lead, protect the flock that God has entrusted with us, listen to me, for his glory and for your holiness. Our job is not to cater to the desires of men, but seek the will of the Lord and faithfully worship him by serving him. Because when pastors simply function as to serve man, there's compromise and there's watering down things that happen. And I love the beauty in chapter 13, and they, I believe that, not that I'm reading into the text, but maybe uh Barnabas and Saul saw that what God was doing and they went, man, we need more guys who God's called to help us lead these people. It's too big for one man to do on his own. It's too important for one guy to begin to just place his DNA through everything. It's not built on this one guy. So there's these multiple guys that are called in. What are they doing? They're faithfully serving the body as worship to God. First. As I said, some people see this as the whole church, which probably is. As I said, how the leader leads, the people are going to be there as well. And so there's a group of guys who are leading the body in this manner, then the church is going to follow that pattern. But the same point applies. Listen to me, child of God. Our service to the Lord is first a holy work. Think about in context of our own church. When we serve in that miserable building over there. Loving on kids. That service is first worship to our Lord. When we're committed to our small group or we're leading a small group or we're leading a group of people, whatever we do when we're serving within God's body, first we have to realize it's for the glory of the Lord. Whenever we stand on stage, whenever we are in the back of the booth, whenever we get early to open doors, whenever we make coffee or whenever we do that, why are we serving God's people? Because we're doing it, first of all, as worship to our God. We don't serve for the applause of man, but for the glory of God. So we read about the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians. says they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. In 2 Timothy 2, we read, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved. And I love this one, and this is going to be encouraging. In Colossians chapter 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the Lord Jesus received the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Here's what I love about that verse. It is the word whatever. As in my service into the Lord is not confined to the, into the boundaries of this building. It's whatever you're doing. Listen to the child of God. Whatever you're doing, you are a servant to, of the Lord. Whatever we find ourselves doing, whether that be work or in our families, all of that could be done in service to the glory and the worship of our creator. 
That's the good news about the cross. That's the good news about the the totality of Jesus' work is that now, wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, my service could be to audience of one, that being God, that he's even redeemed my mundane, mundane days at work, that my work could even be lived for his glory, that I can serve God in the office, I can serve God in the classroom, I can serve God on a sports field, I can serve God wherever I am, because wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I can do it first for his glory. Serving the Lord is not just in that ugly building or here on Sunday mornings. It's where you're going to be tomorrow. And I want to encourage you to live it in a way, first and foremost, that God has given me this opportunity, the capability to do so, and he deserves the glory for where I'm at and what I'm doing, no matter where we find ourselves. And he's even, listen to me, the things that, and think about work for a moment. Remember in the curse, like after Adam sinned, that like because of sin, like the ground was not gonna be easy anymore. There's gonna be, there was a curse to that. So there's a part of our work that, that is difficult. Why? Because we're just fallen. But now in Christ, even that work that may be difficult can be used for the glory of God in our own life. So whatever you're doing, child of God, a couple of questions. Do you see your service to the Lord first as worship? Are you serving the Lord? Let's be real honest. The serving and ministering to the Lord that we see about these leaders and within the church is that ultimately they they were faithful. I believe all the church was faithful to where God had called them to be. Are you serving the Lord where you are? How has God called you to serve? The second thing we see about the church is that they sought the Lord's will. They were led by these leaders, but they, they sought the Lord's will. We see that in 2B. It says, so while they were worshiping and fasting, pause there for a moment. Fasting is where I get the idea that they were, they were seeking after the Lord's will. Uh, because when you look at Scripture, uh, they were fasting, and then you see in verse 3, they fasted again. And what we understand is that the fasting is, is never commanded for the believer, but it's assumed. I mean, never see like an explicit command for the believer to fast. But there is, it is assumed in Jesus' conversations with his disciples that the believer would fast. And fasting is a withholding yourself of something, usually food, um, but fasting is not the end in and of itself. It's to lead us somewhere. It is to, there's a greater something that we're chasing after. And by depriving ourselves of something, it gives us more intensity or focus or drive to pursue that in which we so desire. Everybody with me? And so obviously it's food for naturally because when you get hungry, your body begins to, you know, hurt or let you know. And what is that? It drives you to, to feast on the presence of God. If it drives you to feast on God if you will. It's never commanded, but it's assumed. We see that in Matthew, but also in Luke chapter 5, 33-35, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours uh, eat and drink. And so the disciples, like, I mean, they were like, hey, we see John the Baptist's disciples, they're, uh, they're always fasting, but your disciples, they're just getting fat over there. And all they do is just, they just eat and drink. And he said in verse 34, and Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As in Jesus says, there's no need for them to fast because the one they'd be fasting over is with them. I am fully with them at this moment. There's no need for them because I'm fully with them right now. But what does he say in verse 35? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, when he ascends. And they will fast in those days. So Jesus is saying here, listen to me, right now my disciples don't have to because I'm here. But one day I'm leaving and there will be a time that my disciples will fast. They will, they will seek my presence. They will seek my, my, my will. They will seek after me by depriving themselves of something. Everybody with me? So it's not commanded, but it's assumed. And it's, it's in contrast to the Pharisees. And so uh, you may say, Justin, didn't, didn't Jesus, like, can, like, didn't he just like, not condone fasting, didn't he get on to Pharisees? Not really, but we see in Matthew 6, 16 and 18, it says, when you fast, so there you go, there's a when you fast, this is Jesus talking, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, uh, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they will receive their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your feet, face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by the Father who is in, correct, who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So it's not commanded, but it's assumed that when Christ returned to the father, the believers would be seeking after his presence so much that they would literally fast. So that wasn't just something in the Old Testament. It wasn't just something the hypocrite Pharisees did. It was something that the believers would do to seek after Christ. And what we see in scripture is that the fasting is always connected to vigilant, passionate prayer. It isn't just by itself. It's always connected. We see it in Nehemiah chapter one, when Nehemiah hears about the the, the wall is being torn down, but there's a remnant. And what does he say in, in verse 4? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and, counted fa- and I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. We see it in Daniel when he's praying for his people. In chapter 9, verse 3, he says, I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth ashes. As I said, fasting wasn't just for the sake of fasting, but it served as a tool to seek the Lord more deeply. They were seeking the Lord's will. Listen to me, I wrote this down this morning. They did it, the church, we just saw in chapter 12, they prayed fervently in times of crisis. Listen to me, they didn't just pray fervently in times of crisis. They prayed fervently, even ultimately is what to do next. The church of Antioch, listen to me, they, they're feeding up on God's word. There's a love for God's people that is being manifested. And they could have been satisfied there. They did a good work. They, they took up a love offering of senators. They could have been satisfied there. But no, the leaders and the people, they were, they were fasting and ministering and praying into the Lord. Ultimately, like, God, where do we go next? What's next for us? They didn't just plan or they didn't have a dream board and they, they wrote out their dreams and, and cool sayings. What did they do? They went to the Lord so much so that they fasted, that they sought after the Lord's will. They weren't complacent. They still had breath in their lungs and they wanted to be used of the Lord. They wanted to serve the Lord and do his will. And I'm just going to step out, I'm step to the side for a moment and talk about this. Church, I'm convinced more than ever that we as believers, those who know Jesus, who have the opportunity to pray fast, if you will, for God's direction, if there's ever been a time that we need to learn to do that now, that it's become more and more evident, even as a pastor, that what God's called me to do is impossible without seeking the Lord's face and help. 
when it comes to being a husband, when it comes to being a father, it's impossible for me to do that in a way without seeking the Lord's help and his power and his will. What I've come to understand, I shared it with the team this morning, we talked about it staff last week, is that you and I are, we concentrate on the physical a lot of times in our life because we're, we're physical people, like we have physical bodies. But we're not just physical, we're spiritual as well. Right, and what happens is, is in our lives, let me just kind of talk about us for a moment. I'm not gonna point fingers, but as your pastor, there are physical things that I can do to serve you and lead you. I can fare each week physically and stand up here and preach a sermon. I can physically visit you in a hospital room. If you have a baby or you're sick, I can physically do those things. But I'm limited to physical. Because there's a whole other world of spiritual that goes around that only God can do. I can stand up each Sunday and preach a sermon that I've spent hours and hours preparing, but only God can put it in your heart. I can, I can, I can do, make the coolest plans in the world to have some kind of evangelistic push or whatever, but only God can save a sinner. I can walk into a hospital room to try to encourage you in your time of crisis, or Ryan can because he does it more than I do, but only God can actually comfort your heart. And it's not just for the pastor, it's in all of our lives. You can physically come to church each Sunday. You can physically try to do the things that God's called you to do, right? You can physically be present and active, but apart from the Spirit of God working, you will not do anything into the spiritual realm or eternal effect. And that's exactly what we've seen going on in the church of Antioch. They were doing everything right physically. They were serving one another as worship to the Lord. They were taking care of the church in Jerusalem. People were being saved, but they understood that there was something greater than the physical physical body that only God could do. So what did they do? They hit their face, they, they put their head down, and they fast, and they pray out to the Lord, what do we do? We have to learn to think and live spiritually. And here's how I wrote it down, is that prayer and fasting it tunes the physical to the spiritual. Listen to me. Is your marriage struggling right now? It's not just physical, y'all. It's a spiritual battle taking place. Are you unhappy at work or is there things going on at work that just Satan's disrupting, whatever? It's, it's not just a physical issue. There's a spiritual issue going on. But we will always operate and respond physically. You know why people act? You know why lost people act lost? Because they're lost. They don't know Jesus. They're under the dominion of the evil one, of darkness, if you will. Why does controversy, why do these things come up? It's not just because people physically do wrong things, but there is a spiritual force, spiritual battle taking place in each one of our lives. That there's an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, but there's a Savior who wants to seek and save. It's bigger than just my marriage. It's bigger than just the physical body sitting in butts at a church. It's, it's bigger than all those things because there's a God of the universe who's trying to advance his kingdom while the God of this earth, if you will, is trying to keep it from happening. 
So how do we, and we talked about it a lot lately, remembering each day is not just lived. Our enemy is not even flesh and blood, Scripture teaches. How do we each day remember this fight that we're in? I believe when we're praying and we're seeking the Lord, the physical will be tuned into the spiritual. And we'll see each day as it is. They sought the Lord's will. And just a couple of questions. Have we spent, spent time seeking the Lord's will? Have we passionately and sacrificially sought after the face of the Lord for his will and his help? I remember reading this a few years ago, and it may, may have butchered it, but to the extent in which we pray is the extent in which we trust ourselves. That we can see how much trust we have in ourselves by how much we call out to God in dependence. This church was a church that was led by these spiritual leaders, but they, as a church, they sought after God's will. Feverishly and untiringly denying themselves of something so that they could hear God's voice. Which the third thing about them is they were sensitive to the Spirit. See it in verse 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, here it is, the Holy Spirit said, dot, dot, dot. There are so many things that could go here, but I'm not going to chase them all down. But first of all, hey, y'all know we have a God who speaks? <laughs> like uh, Al Mohler, uh, I listened to him a good bit. Uh, and a couple of years ago, he did this college tour where he would just go to like, I think when I saw him, he was at UCLA, and he would just stand up in front of people and literally Q&A with Al Mohler. Uh, and so uh, anything that was coming his way. Uh, but one of the things he talked about was whenever he was in, in his, he got saved real young, but as he grew older, maybe in that later high school, college, he began to have doubts, if you will, as, as many believers do. Uh, and I just want to encourage you for a moment, if you're a child of God and there, there's times that you doubt, like don't just go, like freak out, like that's, it's, it's okay that God's not intimidated by your doubt. Uh, he's not intimidated. He doesn't have an identity crisis. If you for a moment go, is he really in, is he really in charge? Uh, but I would encourage you to, if you're walking through doubt, if you will, uh, to let God get a chance to speak. A lot of times whenever people begin to navigate, is God real? They go to every other source except him. Like, let's give him a chance to speak. And that's what Al Mohler was talking about. He was like, there's two questions that we have to ask. First of all, does God exist? Secondly, does he speak? And if he's spoken, then man, it's incredible. Listen to me, God has spoken. And he still speaks. And so we see that this, the, the, you know, the person side of the Holy Spirit is, well, the Holy Spirit spoke. Man, what a great verse. And I believe that God still speaks today. He doesn't leave it up to them to figure it out, but he spoke. I want you to notice something about the church at Antioch. Backtrack for a moment. Is that yes, they were at a place that they were praying for God what was next. But that wasn't idleness. What were they doing? They weren't sitting around waiting for what's next, but they were still obeying what they knew to do. So even in their quest, if you will, or they're seeking the Lord to what's next, they were still serving and ministering as they have been called. They were an idol. They were continuing to serve. They were sensitive to the Spirit. They heard the Spirit speak. We don't know how the Spirit spoke. We don't know if it's one through one of the prophets. Could have been. It could have been just in their, deep within their own hearts, through the word somehow. But evidently, the Spirit spoke. God spoke, and they, what, heard it. They were sensitive. 
And I believe that God still speaks today, and this is how he speaks. Now, there's maybe other ones that you could find, but I believe that God speaks through his word. I think primarily, listen to me, these are in importance of order too, by the way. He speaks through his word that God has revealed himself in his word, and as we go to it, he speaks to us. If you want to hear from God, then don't, don't negate the scriptures. Give him a chance to speak to you. It's alive and it's active. It's not a dead book. It's, it's, more, it's more relative today to what's going on than any other magazine or book that could be written today. He speaks through his word. I think he speaks through his others. He speaks through his people. That, that through God's people, he could, he could speak to us. I think he speaks through our circumstances. And I read this one. I think he speaks through dreams in a sense. And I said, these are, these are in order of how I think, because here's what's crazy. A few years ago, I would have like, no, that's crazy. No. But I believe that he, he does. As a matter of fact, here's one for you. I don't know if it's something I ate or what. But all week, I've, I studied the scripture, and I, and I debated on even sharing this, but I'm going to share it anyway. I shared it with a couple people. But I believe that this is, this is true. All week long, I, I studied the scriptures, but it's one thing to study the scriptures. another thing to be able to break it down to where you can actually chew on it, right? That you can actually cut it into pieces that we can take it and eat it, that kind of a deal, instead of just coming up here and like holding up a fire, fire hose and just, you know, drenching you. It's like, how do we break this thing down? How do we, how do we make it make sense? How do we connect the tissue and things like that? And I, I struggled. I stayed up last night trying to, trying to figure it out. And I didn't like, I was like, I'm just gonna go up here and just vomit all over them. Cause that's what it feels like sometimes. And all I, this morning I woke up about 4.30. And some of you may be getting uncomfortable because you're like, it's Justin about to get real charismatic on us. Uh, but this morning, I woke up at like 4.30, uh, got up, used the restroom, got back in bed. I was like, man, my alarm's set for 5.30. I'm just going to sleep for another hour. And in that time, I, I kind of dozed off, kind of didn't doze off. But in that time, I, I, would, I began to dream. This morning, I dreamed that I was standing up on this stage. And I started by saying, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And I said, in my dream, I said, this is what we know about the church of Antioch already. And we get to chapter 13. Here are some other things we learn about them. And literally, it's, the, it's everything that I've taught you so far, the order of it, I preached in my dream last night. I woke up immediately and wrote it down, and there you have your sermon. Honestly, that may freak you out. Maybe, like I said, maybe it's just something I ate weird and and I was actually totally in my right mind. But anyway, God speaks to us. And I've had guys within, this is one of the reasons why I believe in it is, is first of all, church, the scripture doesn't say it doesn't happen. So it's not taken out, if you will. We've had people in our own church who come to me and say, hey, man, I, I had this dream. And, and here's the thing, the dream in which God, and I wrote it down like this. And I think it's the next point, but God doesn't reveal things to us just for us to know them, but to obey them. It isn't just so that we can say, hey, God spoke to me. It's so that we could actually obey what he's called us to do. So anytime somebody comes up and starts talking about dreams and that kind of thing, and it's all about, look at me, I'm good, I'm smart, but it has nothing to do with how they're living their life, loving the Lord and loving others, then don't listen to them. Anyway, somewhere in my notes. But here, may we tune our hearts that we could hear from him. Ultimately, they were in a position to hear. If you want to hear from God, position yourself in the word of God. 
Position yourself in the people of God. Position yourself in prayer and fasting. Position yourself in those places which God speaks. Fourthly, about this church is they were submissive to the Lord's will. Not only did they seek the Lord's will, but they were submissive to the Lord's will. Again, we see it in verse 3 that they were fasting and praying. So they hear the Spirit, set out Saul and Barnabas, and then they begin to pray and fast again. There could be a couple reasons they were doing that. One, for clarity or assurance, or maybe if they're like us, they were praying for the Lord's will. God gave them their will, sent out Saul and Barnabas, and they went, no, that's, no we must have misheard him. So they, anyway, I don't know, but if they're like us, it's like, cause get, remember, Saul and Barnabas are their best. Like, this, like these, have you read Paul's letters? Like, you want us to give up him? Send out this guy, set aside these guys. They were seeking the Lord's will. And God says, I want you to send your best. I want you to send your most gifted. I want, you to, I want them to send your best teacher, your most zealous teacher, and your best encourager. I want you to send them out. And this couldn't, this couldn't be what they expected and probably didn't love it. But nevertheless, they asked for the Lord's will and they got it. Man, I'm thankful that they submitted to it. Literally, God called them to send out their best. And they didn't serve themselves. Listen to me. They served us. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is about to be the first missionary journey, y'all. They're about to send them out to the Gentiles. And because this church, who was, who was so zealous about the Lord's will and submitted to it by them laying their hands on and sending them out, they served us. It says that they laid their hands on them. There was nothing special within, like nothing came out of them and went into Paul and Barnabas. It was a sign of affirmation or commission that you, we still see in our church services today. We'll see it later on in Acts as well when they appoint elders to lead the people. We see here this partnership between God and his people in the working and sending but here it is, but their obedience, listen to me, their obedience came at a sacrifice for them. As I said, they were not, they didn't serve themselves. They were obedient to what God had called them to do. And I think going back to their leadership, I believe this is one of the benefits of a plurality of leadership. Why? Because Antioch wasn't built on the personality of Saul and Barnabas. It was built on the word of God. So whether they were there, they were not there, the church of Antioch was still going to be healthy, and they were still going to serve the Lord, they're still going to love the Lord, and they're still going to reach the lost. It wasn't built on them. And I hope you've seen over the past couple of years how with, with me, Luke, and, and Ryan, and Daniel, and Paul, that we have guys who we've come in, and what we're doing is we're building a team in which it's not built on us. It's not built just on Justin. It's not built just on Luke. It's not built on Ryan or Daniel or, or Paul. What, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're hopefully uh, uh, organized or leading a body of people that is about God's glory. That it's not built on us. This doesn't make or break if one of us are here or not. And so... Are you obeying that which the Lord has revealed to you? you can go ahead and come up a loop. 
I believe that, that if, you, if you're a child of God, that you seek his face. If you position yourself in the word of God, the people of God, in prayer and fasting, and maybe even go to sleep, who knows? But if you position yourself to hear from God, he'll speak to you. And I believe he doesn't reveal his will just so that you know it, but that you will obey it. And so, has the Lord made clear to you, has he revealed to you what he's calling you to do? Another thing, the principle we can see in this text is that it is God who calls people to ministry, not man. And there may be somebody sitting in this room, even this morning, that God's calling you to, to ministry in a sense that you're, you're coming a man of the law. You've given your life to the service of the Lord and for, as a profession, if you will. Has God called you to ministry? Has God called you in your workplace to, to serve God in a way that's worshiping to him? Has God called you to share the gospel with family or friends or to forgive or to, to reconcile or, or whatever? Has God called you to do those things? If so, he's called you so that you will obey those things. And I'm thankful we have an example of the church at Antioch that said, even though it may not have been the most favorable, it was God's plan and they submitted to it. This morning, what's the Lord spoke to you? Maybe you're in here this morning and you don't really know why you're here. The only reason you're here is because you, you need to be told that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have not out the love of God. No matter if you're Manan who grew up in a house of Herod, that God can still save you. Maybe you're in here this morning and this church thing isn't, isn't really a thing for you. Maybe you see yourself as unworthy, unclean, not acceptable. The good news is, is that's how the Bible describes all of us. Yet God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son for the unworthy, for the broken, for the ungodly. He who was perfect was treated as if he was every sin that had ever been committed. Why? So that God can save you and me to redeem us, to purchase us, to trust in him. This morning, will you do that? Maybe the enemy's whispered, you're not worthy. I want to tell you, no, you're not, but Jesus died for you anyway. And he'll save you if you've been listening. Not only will he save you, but he'll use you. Oh, man, he'll use you for greater things than you could ever dream of. He could take your ordinary and do extraordinary things through it. That your life from nine to five or eight to five can be lived for something greater than just getting a paycheck. They can be used to advance the kingdom of Christ. Child of God, you are where you are to serve the Lord. Do it as worship. Even on Monday, whenever you don't want to be there, 
stop a moment, ask for God, God, I need you this morning because I'm not waking up in gospel mode. We don't wake up in gospel mode every day. That's why Paul says in, in Corinthians, I'm gonna remind you of the gospel. We look at your workplace, a place, and we'll see it again in Acts. I know I gotta be quiet, but in Acts, Paul is preaching and he says that, I'm gonna butcher it because I'm not reading it, but ultimately that God has predestined us in the idea of no matter all the people of the earth, where they would live, when they would live there. So you are where you are when you're there by God's sovereign decree. Your job, your family, wherever you are, you are where you are when you're there for God's glory. Serving. Seeking. And when he speaks, listen and obey. Is he speaking to you to trust in him this morning? I urge you to obey. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you, uh, God, now as we respond, God, that we'll do so in such a way that glorifies and honors you. God, we thank you that you speak to us. God, we thank you for the church at Antioch who is an example to us. God, they weren't perfect. They were flawed. But God, they were they were sinners who trusted in a Savior who you called into one fellowship and they sought after your will and your ways. God, may we at Cross Point not just dream big dreams or have great plans, but God, may we seek your face for your will and your, your guidance. God, we thank you that this life of being a Christ follower is not just for Sundays and small group, but God, you call us each and every day to live, to serve, to worship you as we serve you by the way, by the way we live, the type of employees we are, the fathers we are, the mothers we are. You call us in all those realms to serve you in a way that worships you. God, make clear to us how you want to use us. Give us eyes to see those people around us who you've orchestrated in our lives for us to serve. God, we do pray that as we're committing ourselves to your word and your people, God, that you will give us a great hunger for those who don't know you that cross will become a place who sends people to people that don't know you. God, have your way during this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand. Uh, we'll be standing in the back if you need to talk or pray.